0: Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's where we'll spend most of our time together this evening. And before we begin, I would just like to thank Pastor John and the Elders of Grace Church for the opportunity to open God's word with you. The title of this evening's sermon is Trusting in the Grace of Yahweh. Let's read chapter 30 together, and then we'll discuss it. And the Word of God reads, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, for this commandment that I command you today, it is not too hard for you, neither it is, is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish, shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose Life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and the length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Pray with me, Lord, as we turn to your word. Make it clear to our hearers and make it clear to our hearts. Thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself to us. And so we don't have to search far to find what it is that you want us to know. Here in your work, speak plainly to us and use this so that we might love you and be devoted to you. And live so that others might know the grace of God on display from the one and only God who has borne us through the truth of the gospel. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Misplaced confidence is quite the thing. Uh, I would know as someone who uh, had the joy of attending Cornell University, which you think I got there because I was smart, but that's not true as I've learned over the years. Um, And you would think that to graduate from such a place, the hardest thing in life would be your classes and your exams and your professors. And all of that kind of thing. However, the hardest thing for me when graduating from a place like Cornell, which is like Harvard, just not, (laughs) was the Cornell swim test. That's right, the swim test. Uh, Ithaca, New York, where Cornell is located, there are about 150 waterfalls. And the saying in Ithaca is, Ithaca is gorgeous. G-O-R-G-E-S. Um, Because there's lots of gorges, and so, uh, uh, mm -hmm, I know. And so one of the the dangers is that young people, those who can swim and don't know how to swim, they can't defeat nature, and so there's present danger. And so they want us to know how to swim so that we can survive Cornell. They didn't know that was going to be the case, found out my first week there. So I showed up to the swimming pool. And in there were thousands of other students watching and getting ready to watch one another pass this swim test or maybe fail it. And if you did, you had to take a class to learn how to swim. And so I'm getting ready to jump in, eight of us all together, each in our own lane. And in my mind, I say, well, I mean, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm from the Caribbean. I got this. I know what to do with this water. I'm going to show these people exactly how to swim. So I jump in and I book it. And I am on my way back. You gotta go down, back, and back up. And I am on my way back before anyone is even halfway up the first lap. Freestyle, backstroke, and then whatever you want going the other direction. So now I'm into the backstroke, and about four seconds in, I begin to die. My legs are cramping. My body's aching. I am not as Puerto Rican as I thought. And all of a sudden... Everyone is passing me. Now, I haven't reached the end of the second lap while I'm watching people get out of the pool. This is how weak and frail of a person I am. And finally, I think the only thing that got me to the very finish line was the sheer terror of being embarrassed in front of all these people I don't even know. And finally, after about 10 minutes, I make it out of the pool. I flopped over onto the cement like a baby seal. I'd misplaced confidence that day. I thought I knew a lot more about myself and I thought that I was a lot better of a swimmer than I actually am. I thought that I could show everyone around me that I was the kind of person to be impressed with. Nothing could be further from the truth and this is actually the plight of many young men. And where we are in Deuteronomy 30, it's actually the plight of a very young nation. A nation built up of many who've been wandering the wilderness and their forefathers are now gone because of their disbelief. As they prepare to enter into this nation, they have misplaced trust too. God is calling them into a land and delivering them into a land that he's promised to their forefathers. He made a promise to Abraham and he's going to keep that promise. And this young nation filled with tons of people who are eager to get to this land as they stand in the plains of Moab and they overlook the Jordan and they think of God's goodness and they think of his deliverance and they think of having even seen and experienced his judgment and his saving hand. Even now, as they receive the word of God that will instruct them in this land, the question is, will they trust in God or will they trust in themselves? Moses gives us the answer. That like many young men, the nation of Israel looks towards the promised land. They look towards what they know will be theirs And as they look in and see God's favor, very quickly, they'll turn back to trusting themselves. Misplaced confidence is a dangerous thing. And here Moses has given to the people the law of God, which we studied last Sunday. And Israel has been given from God the way to life and to possess this land and to keep this land. And having seen all the good that God has done for them, they still time and time again will choose to depend on themselves. The portion that I technically have before me is chapters 29 to 31, but I think it's helpful for you to understand that before we get there, God has been utterly clear with his people especially in chapters 28 to 29, God makes it clear that there is a way of blessing and there is a way of cursing. There is a way to have God's favor and there is a way to have God's opposition. If this nation is to abide by the words of God, they will be blessed by God. They will keep the land. They will prosper in the land. But if this nation turns back, God will allow this nation to fail. He will allow it to crumble. He will allow others to overtake them. He will strike them with poverty and with pestilence and disease. They will experience either the favor of God or the judgment of God based upon how they receive the word of God. What you do with God's word matters. And so it is the story of Israel. And unfortunately, as we turn to this third sermon of Moses in this book, what we find out very tragically is that Moses overlooking and seeing that land and Moses knowing the people that are to enter it, Moses also knows their destiny. He knows exactly what will happen. And chapter 29 actually begins to unfold for us that this nation that's about to enter into the land will possess it and then fail. In chapter 29, Moses recites the covenant that was made to this people in Horeb. And now they're in the plains of Moab and there, are, uh, there is the recitation of this law, this word that was given to the people. They understand the nature of blessings and the nature of the cursings that will come. But notice how these people are described. Particularly, look down with me at verse 18 of chapter 29. Midway through the verse, Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. This is the destiny that Moses is beginning to predict for this people because he knows their stubbornness of heart the people about to take the land are no better than the ones who won't get it. In fact, it drops down, chapter 29, you can go down to verse 24. This is how serious the, uh, their turning away from God will be. Verse 24, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers. Dropping down to verse 27, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Lang, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath, and cast them into another land as they are this day. There will be grave consequences for misplaced confidence. Israel choosing to trust in themselves will lead to grave consequences. And so as they overlook the Jordan and as they look to the promised land, perhaps not fully understanding all of what is to take place, you and I as readers can then ask ourselves the question, then what hope is there for Israel? What hope is there at all if the nature of this is they will fail and fail and fail and never be able to fully attain the blessing Yahweh has promised them? Then we turn to chapter 30. And chapter 30 will remind us and answer that question for us in a very clear and profound way. And it will remind us that even though in chapter 29, Verse 25, as we read that Israel will abandon the covenant of the Lord, the Lord will never abandon the covenant he has made with his people. Chapter 30 will remind us that although this people is is faithless, God is faithful. The the message that is before us is that God will keep his covenant because God is a covenant-keeping God. The message before us in chapter 30 is that Israel has a hope, not because it's Israel, but because Yahweh is Yahweh. The message before us in chapter 30 is that grace always wins because God is gracious. What we see in Deuteronomy 30 in this Evening, I'd like to put it in front of you in four different ways four products of grace that will encourage us to trust in Yahweh with all our heart and all our soul. Four products of grace that will encourage us to trust in Yahweh with all our heart and all our soul. Because, like Israel, we too can look at the world around us and question, will God really do what God really says? And when you ask that question, you must recognize you're asking it in the most humanly speaking way possible. Because if you knew God, you know that everything God purposes to do, he does. You know that everything God says comes to pass. You know every, every promise God makes, he keeps. And so will Israel have hope? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because Yahweh keeps his promises. And can you and I have hope? Absolutely. Because Yahweh keeps his promises. And though Israel turns time and time again from a faithful God, they cannot undo the character of God. Our blemishes and our sins do not affect his holiness, and they do not affect his integrity. When God has purpose to deliver and save, he will. And so this people have a hope because God is always God. And when God says he will save, he will always save. Four products of grace that will encourage us to trust in Yahweh with all our heart and all our soul. Notice with me firstly that in verse one, The coming judgment of this people is as certain as anything. Having delineated the blessings and the curses, Moses says here, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Pause there. Notice these things are sure to happen. These things will come upon you. And you know this to be true. Of course, there's blessing to come because the next book is Joshua. And of course, there's judgment to come because the book after is Judges. This is exactly what's about to happen to Israel. They receive God's blessings, and in the next breath, they incur his judgment. And Moses sees it on the horizon. And not only does he see that their judgment will require them to scramble, it will require God to drive them out of the land they've longed to be in. Here he says it: you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. But now we turn to the gracious hand of Yahweh so that our hearts might be encouraged. And number one, I want you to notice that grace restores God's people. Grace restores God's people. And God will have to drive them out of the land for their sin. And yet verse 2 gives us great hope for what is to come for Israel. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. On you. Notice that just as they're driven away, Moses seems to understand they also will be brought back. They will return. It's a beautiful word in the Hebrew. You pronounce it shuv, and it's exactly what they need. They need to be shoved in the right direction, and they will be. They will return to the Lord their God. They will turn around. They will turn back. They will make a legal U-turn. and i think that when i say that you understand exactly what yahweh purposes for this people that turning back that turning around that having gone astray and returning to where you were we call that repentance and that's exactly what god necessitates from israel in order for this restoration to happen israel will have to come to terms with the truth Israel will have to recognize its faults and return to God, repentant for its sins and its disobedience. That's what Isaiah will call for in Isaiah 1, 16 through 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove evil, the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Again, in Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. What a foolish thing to think that we could ever have God's favor when we do not recognize our sin and turn away from it. What a foolish thing to think that we can incur blessing by being blind to sin or or by acting as if though our sin is a very minute thing Or, or by acting as if our sin is very inconsequential. It is not so for Israel. In order to be restored, you must repent. And when they repent, notice exactly what that looks like. Not only a turning away from their sin, but then they will obey his voice. This is all true repentance. Repentance is not, I don't do evil anymore. Repentance is, I don't do evil and now I obey the Lord my God. I walk in righteousness. I walk in light of his wisdom and his word and his law. How do you know someone's repented? They hate evil and they love good. That's what Israel must do. And when they do, they will be restored. When they obey the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul, with all their being, then the Lord will restore their fortunes, having mercy on them. And he will gather them again from the peoples where the Lord has scattered them. It doesn't matter how far off they've gone away from the land, God will bring them back. They could have ran up into the heavens and God will bring them back to the land. That's what verse four says. In verse five, the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it and it'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. This is what grace does. It restores and it prospers. It is the grace of God that is the basis for any hope in Israel at all. Moses knows that they will turn away. Moses knows that they will go astray from the path of Yahweh. And yet Yahweh promises, repent, put your trust in me, hope in me, turn to me, and I will restore you. Why? Because they deserve it? Absolutely not. Because God is good and gracious and merciful. When Israel sees its sin for what it is, God can show his grace for what it is. And he will prosper this people. Now, you might be asking a very important question. How were they supposed to repent? How will they know to turn back to Yahweh and to be forgiven for this sin? A people so prone to wander, a people so gone, so prone to go astray from the Lord, how will they come to terms with needing to do this? Good question, and Moses has an answer. Number two, grace renews man's heart. Grace renews man's heart. Look at verse six and tell me if it's familiar to you. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. If this people has any hope of turning around and coming back to Yahweh to trust in him, Moses is saying God will have to do that work in them. They don't have the heart to do that. As of a matter of fact, go back to chapter 29 and look at verse four. Here after hearing the entire law of Yahweh, receiving all the commands that are before them to prosper in the land and to live long in the land. Verse four, chapter 29. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. They don't have what it takes to do this. So what does that tell us? We need God. And we need his grace. They needed God. And they needed his grace. And God in the abundance of his love and steadfastness towards his people. Promises to do for Israel what they could never do for themselves. Though he's already commanded them. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. To circumcise their hearts and to walk in righteousness before God so that they would live, he now turns the corner and says, I know you cannot do this, so let me do it for you. Not only that, but I will do this for you. What hope does Israel have? It has the hope that Yahweh will take care of it. That even when they turn from him, even when they go astray, their Lord will, Will not forsake them. This won't depend on them, it will depend on God. And this section here in chapter 30 is actually the climax of the entire chapter. You'll notice with me that in verse, in chapter 30, verse 2, you have this uh, sense of restoration, but it's tethered to them obeying his voice with all their heart and their soul. Here in verse 6. Their heart must be circumcised. It must have sin cut away, wickedness cut away, and their heart of their offspring so that they would live. But this too with all their heart and their soul. And that refrain is repeated one more time in in verse 10, where they are to keep this book of the law in their hearts so that when they turn to the Lord their God, they will do so with all their heart and with their soul. And this is structured so that this middle refrain, verse six, can stand out to you as being of maximum importance. What will it take for Israel to turn back to Yahweh? It will take Yahweh turning them back to himself. Any hope Israel has is bound to the grace of God, not merely to reverse their fortune, but also to reverse their affection not only to alter the nation's direction, but also to alter the nation's devotion. What this system lacks is not law, but love. Not because the law lacks it, but because they lack understanding and the heart to hear it. They do not love the Lord their God above all else. So God will grant them a new heart that will do just that. This is what grace will do for them. The grace of Yahweh will give them a new heart. This is delineated elsewhere in scripture. This great hope of the Jewish people is also shown to us in the mighty works of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah 32, 37 Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And thus Ezekiel in chapter 36, notice in this new covenant promise what he offers to this people. I will give them a new heart, verse 26, and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and what? Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's exactly what Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 30. Before we begin to conceive this to be some kind of book that gives a lot of rules and regulations, and doesn't give Israel any opportunity to see that God will save, chapter 30 stands out as a bright diamond to remind us that in God's law is also the hope of this promise, that what Israel couldn't do for itself, God would do for them. And verse eight tells us the same as Ezekiel 36 did. Once they're granted this new heart, they shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. And yet again, then they will prosper. Verse nine, they'll abundantly prosper in the work of their hand. The fruit of their womb, the fruit of their cattle, the fruit of their ground, everything that is yours will prosper. For the Lord again will take delight in prospering you when you obey the voice of the Lord your God. What kind of grace is Israel operating with? The kind of grace that can save them and renew them and transform them. This is where Moses proceeds with his argument. And now the time has come for Israel to understand that what they need most is a change of heart. Now he turns thirdly here a third product of grace. And it's that grace reveals God's law. It's interesting that as we note that Israel needs a new heart, it doesn't absolve them from the responsibility to live up to God's law. Just because they need a transformed heart doesn't absolve them from the realities of living up to what God has decreed for them. God has given them their word and now the question is, will they do it? Will they commit to it? And we know the answer because you have the rest of a Bible. They don't know yet. And so here's the question they ask in verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today, it's not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. The question they ask is, if we need a new heart for this, how are we supposed to be able to do this? That's kind of messed up, don't you think? If we're going to need a new heart to do all this stuff, it's impossible to believe that we can kind of live up to it. Moses answers that question clearly. And he says that grace reveals God's law to us. God hasn't revealed himself in some kind of ambiguous way, God hasn't revealed himself in some kind of way that's uh, unattainable, that you wouldn't be able to understand. And so he says, this is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It not being too hard for you, what he means is it's not hard to understand. And I think all of you know this because you drove down the five and you were going 77 when you know it's 65 you know what it is that you have to do, but you still choose to do something else. The the law and what God has given to these people, obedience, it might not be easy, but it is simple. And that's the point that Yahweh is making unto these people. That's what Moses now begins to tell these people. You might need a new heart, but don't get it twisted. The law is plain. The law can be understood, and many can live by it. It isn't that it's too hard to follow. Man, God's rules are just so burdensome. God's rules just don't make sense. Yeah, they do. All good in society reminds us that God's law is true and perfect and good and has our betterment in mind. It isn't too hard for you. Neither is it too far off. He does a little bit of a play on A metaphor here. It's not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we would hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you would say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Why would he say that? Because just as he's given them his word, He's asked them to internalize it. That's the whole point. God never asked them to just go about their life with some kind of external behavior modification. That was never the point of the law. The point was to show them their need for grace and in it to still show them that as they internalize the law, then they could live for God. But the law must be written in their hearts and the law is plain. So that they might do this. Oh, the word is very near to them. So near that it's in their mouth and in their heart, so that they might live by it. It's interesting that Paul picks up on this very theme here to show us just how God has made this possible for us. You can look with me at Romans chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. Notice that Paul says in verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. We just read that. And Paul understands that to be, that is, who's going to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. This has always been the purpose of the word. It is to be internalized and it is to be believed on in faith. Here is what Israel misconstrued, that if they did, 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 and did, then God would bless them. And this is true. But more importantly, is that if you believe, 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 God will take hold of you. God blesses those who have faith. And now what we've realized in the gospel of Jesus, verse 9, is that because of this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The promises of God fulfilled in him. And we know it on this side of the cross. Israel still without excuse because Israel had God's sure word. The grace of God good enough to reveal the intention of God in his law. And what is that intention? That they would love their God. Isn't this what Christ came for? Christ came so that we too might love him. And how would we do that? By means of his gracious Love for us. Friends, the path for Israel is no different than for us. They are to recognize the unfailing, unflinching, unwavering love of God and hold fast to it. And this is what God has done for us by means of His Son. God's grace reveals the truth. Of his law. Finally here, and we're running out of time, and that's always the preacher's fault. God requires man, grace requires man's decision. Grace requires man's decision. Verses 15 to 20 are a charge from Moses to these people. If grace is to be that which restores them, if grace is to be that which will renew them, if grace is to be that which reveals to them the purity of the law and the love they are to have for God, then grace also asks you to make a decision. Now, when we say grace requires man's decision, it's not that grace plus decision equals salvation. We all know that. It's that grace leads to the right decision. And Israel is faced with that this very day by Moses. Moses. Real-time decisions are based on eternal decrees. And these people have a decision to make. If they obey the commandments of God, they will live. If they disobey, they will surely perish. Therefore, verse 19, choose life. Isn't it amazing that as God puts the options before you, he also tells you which the right answer is? I wish I had that on all my exams in college. And so many people are disgruntled with God because God seems so obscure and so mysterious and God is so hateful and so vengeful and God's so angry. I don't think that's how it works. God has told you the right answer. God says, choose life. And if you're wondering how all of this will bear itself out, in John 1 we read that the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And you know who that word is? He is the life and the light of men. Friends, he is the hope of nations and he will be the hope of Israel. The promises of chapter 30 for Israel, they aren't fully and finally realized yet. However... You know that there's a country named Israel, right? And you know that though they've been judged and though they have fallen short of God's glory and they've failed time and time again, no one can get rid of them. No one ever will. As a matter of fact, why don't you turn with me one last time to Romans chapter 11? And we'll close here. Romans 11. Is there hope for Israel? I think so. Romans 11, one says, I asked then, has God rejected his people, Israel? By no means. Why? Paul, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So there's hope for Israel. What else does it say in verse 11? So I ask that they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And you can go ahead and read in Revelation 7, and you can know that there will be 144,000 that God will save from Israel. So Israel will still be saved. You want to know moral of the story? Because Israel isn't fully and finally saved yet, there's time for you to be saved. That's the purpose. That's the point. Oh, Israel will be saved. And you can be sure of it. Why? Because God is gracious. And his church stands and lives and breathes and worships because we know the grace of Yahweh what God purposed to do for Israel, now he has opened it up to us. And we who were not a part of the tree that is Israel have been grafted in how much more in the final time when Israel is finally saved. That day is coming. That salvation is coming. That restoration is coming. And that grace that was afforded to Israel through the gospel of Jesus, has now been opened up to us. You wanna know that God is gracious? Know that Israel will be saved. Know that no one can blot them out. As hard as they've tried, God's covenant love is still with them. And that to the purpose of this, that you and I might also trust in that grace. The purpose of seeing this great promise that God makes to Israel is that we too would turn away from our sin, that we too would turn away from our iniquity, that we would hate our sin, that we would love the righteousness offered to us in the gospel, that we would recognize that Jesus came to fulfill the law and that Jesus came as the promised one to make sure that that it's guaranteed that all who trust in Yahweh will receive his grace. Did you earn it? No. Is it received? Is it a gift? Yes. Do we merit it? Absolutely not. Is it freely given? Absolutely. And all who receive it will one day fully and finally declare for all eternity, God is gracious. You can bank on it. You can know that as you see God saving in the church, God will rescue Israel. But until that day, walk in his grace, declare his grace, make much of his grace, live by his grace, be holy in his grace, evangelize in his grace, tell others the good news of the gospel while it is today, declare grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and for your grace. We recognize that apart from you, we could do nothing. There is no way that we could save ourselves. There is no way that Israel would have a hope if it were not for Yahweh being a gracious God. And so Israel's unbelief, it has opened the doorway for us in this room to believe upon Yahweh. And the testimony that Yahweh has bore before us is that all who believe in his son do not have to perish, but can have eternal life. Lord, we recognize that apart from you, there is no hope. But because you are so kind and so benevolent and so good, not only do you save, but you've made it known to us that you save. So I pray that in this room, if anyone has not tasted and seen God's goodness by means of his salvation, that you would grab a hold of their hearts and that you would change it out for one that only you can give and that you would embolden us to declare this grace to the ends of the earth until you call us all safely home. This we pray in the matchless and holy and perfect name of Jesus. Amen.